Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Collectibles. Did you know that Amazon sells collectibles, memorabilia, and fine art? They do. Amazon has over 2 million listings for collectibles and memorabilia for non-collectors, gifters, and serious collectors and hobbyists looking to build their collection and find unique slash rare collectibles. The store focuses on PSA and CGC grading, an authenticated selection of comic books, photos, prints, posters, and more across various franchise shows and movies. They really do have a lot of cool stuff. You get free shipping on select items. Uh, just go to Amazon.com Nerdist. And uh, you might want to check out, for example, uh, the first comic featuring Scott Lang as Ant-Man. That's on there. Uh, you just search for Ant-Man, Scott Lang, but go to Amazon.com Nerdist and then poke around and uh, see what you can find out. Basically, anytime you use Amazon, do it through Amazon.com slash Nerdist, and it helps out uh, all of uh, the podcasts you love. Thanks to Amazon, not just for sponsoring the show, but for allowing me to not have to leave my house to go shopping. Greetings, Adventure Coteers. It's me, Work Juice Player Hal Lublin. You may have heard rumors of the thrilling Adventure Hours doing a holiday show at the Theater at the Ace Hotel in L.A. on December 17th. Those rumors are true. And what you may not have heard is that that December 17th show is our final show before going on an indefinite hiatus. Yep, that December 17th show at the Ace will be the last new Beyond Belief, the last new Sparks Nevada, the last of everything for a very long time. Now look, we all love doing the show, but the cast and everyone else has got deservedly busy over the past couple years. And while Acker and Blacker have enjoyed stretching the boundaries of what a thrilling adventure hour can be since ending the monthly show in 2015, it's time for a good long break. So please, join us on December 17th at the Theater at the Ace Hotel for a farewell appearance. The Ace is a beautiful, big theater, and we want to fill it with enthusiastic adventure coteers, the fans who mean so much to us. You can find the link for tickets on all of our social media, that's at ThrillingADV on Twitter, on Facebook, and at workjuice.tumblr.com, or by searching the Ace Hotel calendar. And now, please enjoy this all-new episode. Now entering... Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner Ben Acker for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! I don't, actually. You don't? You're not on Twitter? I'm on, I'm on zero social media. I was checking just now to be like, where is this guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Uh, is this about that too? If you want, but I'm, we're talking about this right now. Listen, Matt Ross is here. I'm happy to have him. Uh, Matt is the writer and director of Captain Fantastic, 
which may be my favorite movie of the year. God bless you. I loved it. People should go see it. I feel like, and I said this on Twitter, you wouldn't know you're not on it, but if people haven't seen it, it's because they don't know what it's about. Maybe. Like they, yeah. they just, like, and some people like to go see movies that way. I do, but I think people like to be... I do, too. Handheld a little bit. Sure. And yeah, there's also that we live in a culture where 30 movies come out every week. Absolutely. And, you know, especially now, today, I mean, this we're in the award season, and but um, certainly through the whole year, you know, I mean, there was a time, I think it was when Chinatown came out, it's going back to the dark ages, when, you know, there'd be two movies every three months, you know, and a movie would do the tour of the country yeah. for a long time, and yeah, yeah. it would, you know... Those days are long gone. Um, for people who have not seen it, yes. can you give us the sort sure. of um, TV guide synopsis? Yes. yes. The TV guide synopsis goes like this. Uh, the film is about a father, played by Vigo Mortensen, who's raising his six kids with his wife in the um, woods of Washington State. Um, they're very far off the grid. The parents have a particular parenting style, um, uh, wherein they're kind of providing a classical rigorous uh, education for their kids and also training them sort of like Olympic athletes and uh, and something happens which I don't want to reveal though the trailer sort of does um, <laughs> uh, that forces them to leave their little uh, secluded paradise uh, and go into the world the outer world wherein uh, Vigo's mm, Vigo's ideas about parenting are deeply challenged, mm -hmm. I would say. Yes, yeah, I, I think that's a good, uh, appropriate description. Uh, the the movie, it, uh, it, it's so effective. I mean, we are so immersed in the world before they come into our world. Right, right. Um, that it's, it's I, I don't know, It's it, in many ways it's hard to talk about, mm -hmm. um, but I'm I'm curious about creating that world and this character mm -hmm. uh, and presenting it in a way that we're sympathetic to. I mean, that, that feels mm -hmm. like that was sort of the first big hurdle in the telling the story. There's a couple questions there. Yeah. Um, one about maybe the authenticity of the world, and then mm -hmm. one about how I conceive the character and the, tra and the um, pitfalls of the character. Yeah, maybe. and ultimately um, it's leading me to another question. Okay. <laughs> so the, the first answer would be... Uh, I did not set out to make a movie about mental illness, about off-the-grid living, about um, homeschooling. There's another thing that happens. I, get, I mean, it's, the movie's been out for a while. Suicide. You know, there's, there's th things that there are certain elements of the film that were not uh, in the forefront of why I told the story. Um, for me, it was very much about uh, being a parent and being a father and my values and what I am or am not passing to my children and how difficult it is to be a parent and how it's sort of unsustainable, they leave, and all these things, all these questions I had. Uh, but when you start doing the math of the narrative, you start figuring out, well, where do they start, where do they end, what, do I, what am I saying about this, is it a transformational journey, if so, how, and so you start with extremes a little bit. Now, it's not entirely autobiographical. Uh, there are some autobiographical elements that I drew on, which were my mother was someone who started or was part of starting some alternative living communities oh, really? in Oregon um, and briefly in Northern California. And 
uh, I always say it's, you know, they weren't hippie communes. It was the 80s, not the 60s. These were not, you know, flower children protesting the Vietnam War. They were people very similar, actually, to what you find in, like, kind of Brooklyn hipsters today who are, like, tired of living in Williamsburg and move upstate to have chickens or whatever, right. you know, um, because they want to have a connection to the land. And I think these, these were very much families like that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the 80s, that was... Not a common thing. I, I, I don't know how common it was. I, certainly, I I, I uh, was introduced to a couple of these places. You know, we so I, I did see some of them. Uh, they were very different. All of them were very different in their manifestations. But um, and in the particular groups that I found myself in, they were definitely sort of West Coast liberal manifestations. I know that the off when you say off the grid, it can conjure up ideas of people who think the government's taking away their guns and want to educate their children in a certain, maybe very Christian way that they're not allowed to in the public schools or whatever. That wasn't my experience. Um, we lived in a teepee in the summertime. Um, my mother was not, is not, uh, Viggo Mortensen. We weren't, um, you know, we weren't hunting uh, deer with a knife. Um, though my brother and I had bows and arrows and stuff like that. So I, I was, I, I lived in a very rural kind of off the grid setting, but that wasn't the real reason. Um, I, I, I wanted to write the movie and why I was passionate about the film. Uh, did I answer the first question? Was yeah, that about and the... I think the the subject of parenthood mm-hmm. uh, is an interesting one, and I think combining it with these autobiographical elements, mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like... Mm. That's what gives a lot of that beginning section a verisimilitude. And then, and then, in addition, because it wasn't my specific experience, mm-hmm. what I start, what happened was, I was home for Christmas. <clears throat> my mother lives in Oregon, and I bumped into a high school friend of mine, and he said, "What are you up to?" And I said, "I'm doing this movie." And he said, and "I told him what it was about," and he said, "Oh, remember so and so from high school?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "He lives exactly like this. You should call him." Mm-hmm. So I did. We had a long conversation. He built his own home. He's uh, completely off the grid in terms of his sanitation and his water source and all this stuff. And I talked a lot. Uh, I talked with him a, a great. Deal about the specifics of what he did, how he did it, what um, what books he read, what magazines, what sources he used. And then when I hired Russell Barnes, who's the production designer, we talked a great deal about mm-hmm. that to make sure that everything was was real. Even if you don't see it, and some some of the, some there's some things that happen in the edit which you don't actually see the infrastructure we had built. Like there was a scene that took place in a little shed, and you could see that oh they have solar power in that shed, so they they are connected maybe with radio, and there was you could see the outhouse behind them. And then because of the editing, we lost some of that stuff. Uh, and then Vigo was very interested in that. You know that when he said yes to the film, he sent me an email. It was about I printed it up, and I don't know it was like. 12 or 14 pages and it was you know really line by line analysis of is this and it wasn't so much I don't want to do this scene or this is shitty writing it wasn't that um, it was is this true is this quote accurate is this accurate is this, could this happen this way and you know he was sort of fact checking and, and he so I think really again this comes down to everyone wanting to make the same movie and all of us wanted to portray the beginning with utmost authenticity and we mm-hmm. talked about well, where it, when we see this tract of land, where would the garden be, and what would grow in this season? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, what, what, you know, so we, we and, and Vigo actually planted the garden. So all that stuff, we it's it's there in the background for you to see. And but it, I, I don't know, it helped it helped inform us. Well, and it, it's what gives the world a lived-in feel, right? Perhaps, I mean, yeah. I think hopefully. that's hopefully. It, the view, I think the viewer can tell the difference. You know, it's yeah. the way we can see tell the difference between something computer generated, right? And something right. Or, or something that seems like a set and costume, and seems like right. something that's lived in the, and that's actually the shirt you wear, not some, some some intellectual idea of what you'd wear based on who we think the character right. is. Right. Which is, uh, you know, to get Vigo's notes is an interesting thing to mm-hmm. me. Uh, I mean, you, you're an actor. We know you mm-hmm. as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Do you put your own script through this rigorous process of sure. yeah. asking a question on every line? Like, like how does being an actor inform writing? It's an excellent, it's an excellent question. And <clears throat> I know some people, even people who are not writers, my wife is a writer and she is not an actor and she likes to read her work out loud, which is something mm-hmm. I actually don't do. Uh, and you'd think that, oh, an actor would do that. I don't, actually. I, I feel like... Uh, these things are the, the most honest answer I can give you is that I'm not sure exactly. I know how it informs being a director. I'm not so sure how it informs being a writer really? because, uh, though I would say my introduction to writing was through dramatic literature, meaning it was through Shakespeare, through Chekhov, through Shaw. I came in through theater, mm-hmm. so it wasn't through reading screenplays necessarily. Or I didn't. I don't think I read a screenplay until I was, you know, in high school, mm-hmm. probably maybe even sure. in college, you know, and. Um, so I, I don't I don't know that I'm thinking in acting terms, you know, in in this so-called um, the way that we break down the language of acting, like what's your objective, what's your obstacle. Like I, I don't I don't think in those terms when I'm writing. I think I think in writing terms, in terms mm. of structure and um, you know. Uh, so, I, but but when I'm when I'm directing, I think I'm more conscious of of being an actor or having that manifest as being something that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, though, honestly, uh, you know, we can talk about inciting incident and, and structural elements of screenwriting. I, I don't use the, the, the acting terminology. I mean, that stuff is there for you when you're, when you, when you have a problem, mm-hmm. really it's instinctual, I think. And it's, and for me, Directing, I think if there's anything that I, in terms of being an actor, that helps me be a director is that I think I, I do on a, I, I understand what an, not only an actor's process is, but I actually also understand their particular point of view and of the experience of the endeavor. Mm-hmm. And that's something that unless you've acted and been on that side of the camera, you may not have. And so I think I may be more tolerant and more patient and more loving, frankly, you know, because acting is really difficult and <laughs> when it's when it's beautiful it's invisible it's seamless but it's that proverbial duck where the under the water the, the you know the the, the 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 legs are flapping, flapping, flapping but it looks so seamless and that's why everyone thinks they can do it you know sure um so there's that i think if i'm reflecting on being an actor as well i would say that i i i love acting actors and the craft of acting and i contend that most people outside of our industry, their experience with the film is through the actors. And though that is one storytelling element, they are not sitting there and thinking, oh, wow, the way the music hit, that that, the edit and the music and the dolly shot, the way they were, oh, that was such a, mm." no. They're looking at some actor having an emotional experience Mm -hmm. and they're communing with that person. That's what it is about, I think, communion. And uh, so... I don't know. I'm when I think about these things from the point of view of an actor is that I, I would say that for me, my experience is that I started uh, acting and making films when I was about eleven or twelve years old. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really make a distinction. I didn't put the label on. Oh, this is the acting part, and this is the filmmaking part. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of what we were doing as telling stories. And that that sounds actually very pretentious. I think we were just but, trying to make cool movies, man, right. as an eleven year old might. But but it's storytelling. Yeah. And later on, I grew up in a in a rural area, as I said, and there was um, there was no access to any kind of film industry mm-hmm. whatsoever. 
uh, we had to drive hours to go to the movies, mm-hmm. you know, two hours sometimes, hour and a half to go to the movies. So, but there, later on in my life, there, I lived in a, in a town where there was a theater and you could do theater and you could, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you, on a bare stage with two chairs, you could tell, you could do King Lear. And so I, I got involved with that and I loved the storytelling of that. At the same time, I was making films. Only later did I actually start to write them, which is something that only, you know, as I'm, as I'm talking to people like you about the film, did I start thinking about when did I actually start writing those things? Because <laughs> when you're a child, you, you make your film, you have it in your head. Exactly. It's like it's about it. You know, I mean, I made... You're playing and there's a camera. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're playing. And, and, you know, either you're making your bad version of Star Wars mm-hmm. or whatever you're trying, Indiana Jones, whatever it is you're doing, right. you know. Um, I made some spy movie, you know, this guy climbed up my, the roof and then broke in and stole some files. And like, and I had, the, and I, had the, I had the whole movie in my head. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, you stand over there. And then let's sit yeah. you know, only later do you start, you know, writing. I, I was reading. So when but, did you start writing, writing things down? Was it I not start, until theater? I started writing fiction in high school mm-hmm. and plays. It was just, Colossally, fantastically terrible place. <laughs> of course, I, I remember one. One was I have no idea why. One was set in World War Two in like a in, a, in like a bombed out church. It was I have no idea right. where. Yeah, it was just. <laughs> I, I think it was plotless. It was like uh, yeah. Of was, course. Yeah, it's it's a, you're finding your voice. Yes, you're yes. Finding I, I had like you. different characters. One was French and German, and all these different oh, characters. And it was just so terrible, so terrible. Um, uh, and it may have been actually influenced as much by the comic books I was reading as anything else. Um, so I, I started writing fiction, uh, and again, I think the, the the first fiction I wrote was probably bad attempts at. Uh, replicating the fiction I loved, mm-hmm. uh, you know, vo- playing sure. with people's voices or, or genres. As we like, all do. Yeah. And, what um, was some of that stuff? What were you into as a teenager? What was formative, do you think, for you? Mm. Well, the, the, the most profound influence on me was Shakespeare. Mm. But I was not writing an iambic pentameter. So uh, I think some of the fiction I was writing was probably more... Um, it was it was pretty bad actually. Um, <laughs> what were you I, I, I What was, were you pulling from it? What I was, was pulling from pretty. I mean, I don't know. It's it sounds it sounds so judgmental to say it, but I was really into um, uh, Robert Ludlum's spy novels mm-hmm. when I was in sixth grade, and so sixth and seventh grade, and so I was writing like international spy fiction. Amazing. <laughs> it's so, it's so terrible. Terrible. Oh, it's so terrible. Actually, one of the first ones I read that I remember loving was The Born Identity, um, mm-hmm. the, the original story, which was just this a great. I just thought it was such an amazing idea. Guy wakes up, he has no idea who he is. He speaks all these languages. He's a superhero. It's amazing, you know. And I think I was writing my versions of that. Um, I had read some, uh, God, I'm trying to remember what it would have been, though, um, some Cormac McCarthy. And so I had played with some Western type genre. Um, and I lived in a very rural area and was around sort of rural Americans. So that was a uh, that was a voice that seemed authentic to me. Although he writes frequently in Texas and the South, and, and but um, mine was more Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm trying to remember what else. Um, I was into Arthurian legends and I was reading a lot of stuff like that. So I think some of the stuff I took, I, I was some, some stuff I was writing took place in a kind of <laughs> magical pre-Christian uh, sure. England. <laughs> that stuff is fantastic. <laughs> did this, um, 
when did I haven't when did, thought about this in I don't know four hundred years. Great. <laughs> uh, we're gonna do some live readings of this old material. Yeah, I can do English accents too. I'll do that. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. When when did the when did writing not become embarrassing for you? Mm. That's an excellent question. <laughs> or is uh, it still probably? Well, no. I, I think. When did it not become embarrassing? I think, you know, the, the fiction I wrote was childlike. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that later on, you know, I'm, I'm speaking of the stuff that I first started playing with, and that was probably in junior high and getting into high school. Right. In high school, I was also, I was in honors English, so I started reading Dostoevsky and this stuff that I was really way too young to emotionally understand. I, I actually think they, in a, in a strange, counterintuitive way, they did a, us a great disservice. You know, you're reading Sense and Sensibility and, and, and Dostoevsky. Turgenev and all these amazing writers when you're way too young yeah. to have any concept. I think that stuff at maybe college, you can, I, at least for me, it was just, in a, in a way, I, I had no equipment to understand. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know. So I think that some of the fiction I started playing with was uh, uh, was similar. To, I, I was really fascinated with the Dark Russians. And, um, and I think that coincided really well with being a teenage boy. Mm-hmm. You know, like, no one understands me. Life is <laughs> terrible. Uh, and so a lot of my early fiction was that, I think. In terms of Writing, I, I started playing with uh, screenplays around that time. Around, uh, started actually writing screenplays probably around college, and um, you know, I think I was I was playing in genre a lot, and I didn't know what my voice was. And again, your first step is probably emulating those who 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 moved you deeply. And I was really interested in films at that time that were theatrical, um, uh, Jean Pierre Genet and. Um, uh, Terry Gilliam, uh, uh, Tim, early Tim Burton, certainly, mm-hmm. like Edward Scissorhands, those the, the films that posited an alternate, though real universe, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's no one has superpowers necessarily, although I get Edward Scissorhands as a, I don't know how you define that exactly, but, um, you know, if you start, if you think of like City of Lost Children or mm-hmm. uh, Delicatessen, they, you know, sure, sort of fully realized. Yes, world. I loved that. Yeah. I loved that, and a lot of the early stuff I wanted to do was very much that. And I actually have some features that are like that. But I, uh, why, why make that jump to screenplays? Was it just more exploring what kind of writing you could do? I think because I no, I, I think. I think the, tra- the trajectory for me was I discovered storytelling probably in a communal way through theater. I made films because as an American, I saw tons of films as we all did do. Uh, I loved the craft element of making film in a way that I never felt in theater. And that's a strange and, and, and maybe dismissive thing to say because, you know, the theater is really important and it's its own thing. And I, I have so much experience in theater. I did so much of it in my life, mostly as an actor, also sometimes as a director. But I think there was something for me, and it's a personal thing, and I really don't mean this as a value judgment about theater versus film, but for me there was something truly transformative, almost religious or spiritual about many of the cinema experiences I had. Really? And, and I think that there's something about when you're in a theater, it's live, and that element is extraordinary. There's a human being having experience right there, and you're watching it. However, it also feels 
false because mm-hmm. I know that they're that's not the, you know they're where I can see their makeup mm-hmm. and I know this is a set and you know <laughs> and they're going to do it again tomorrow. Yes, and there's something about the film which is also completely false. Mm-hmm. But there's I don't know if it's because they're not there and it's it's this recorded thing, but it feels like it feels as close to a living dream as you can have mm-hmm. and. That was so profound for me. So I think for me, it was always scratching toward wanting to do that. Hmm. And I also think that um, I draw, I've painted in my life, I take pictures. I think that I was realizing that the film element clicked, uh, ticked more boxes for me. Mm-hmm. You know that there was a, you know, there was something like building a house or making a sculpture. There was something tactile about it sure. that really appealed to me. Uh, because they're both communal endeavors, uh, but there's something about the film. I, I, I think also maybe I really eroticized composition and ro- eroticized, you know, the, the point of view. Whereas in theater, you do that too. You know, mm-hmm. if I, if if you and I, if I'm the director and you're the actor, and you decide to move there uh, as opposed to there, mm-hmm. we are directing the audience's point of view. We are doing the same thing. We are creating a shot in a way. Sure. Now we are, it's not as um, uh, reductive because we, you know, the audience can choose to look over there if they want to, but we're, we're attempting to focus. Uh, There's something, uh, you know, film does that obviously is, is able to do that um, by virtue of the medium much more successfully. Uh, That's, you know, every shot, the close up, whatever it is, you're saying, look here, this is the point of view. And there's something about that that I just loved. Um, but that's, I mean, it's an interesting thing to hear you say that it's that sort of, it's the collaborative and the the almost technical elements that you were into when, yes. you know, the film I've seen of yours is so character and story mm. driven, mm. you know, like... It's hard to make a movie. We were saying this before we started rolling. Mm. There's so many people involved. There's yeah. so many things you have mm. to do mm. right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that to make and a, there's so many ways it can go wrong. Exactly. Yeah. That to make a good movie is is nearly impossible. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I think folk, the ones that are are focused on story and are focused on character. And mm. I think you were able to do that. So how do you put aside the fetishization mm. of yeah. the technical aspects? Well, I think the fetishization of the technical aspects led me to wanting to make films as opposed to wanting to direct theater, probably. Mm-hmm. And that something that happens, and you didn't make this assumption, but many people do. Oh, you're an actor. Your way in is through the acting, and that's all that you focus on. Um, you know, that's when people have that idea, that's really a, a misunderstanding mm-hmm. of how I got involved or why I got involved. Because I think the script is everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think that without that, you can make it a pretty good movie if you improvise it. But you're, I, I, I have yet to see a brilliant film. I mean, a brilliant, deep, deep film um, that doesn't come from a really good screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, well, it felt like. Captain Fantastic, to me anyway, felt like a story that you had to tell. Yeah, I, yes, I was uh, passionate about it. I thought, you know, I think that's where story first comes. And I thought it captured me. The reason, as opposed to the ten other screenplays that are sitting on my didn't my computer, why I wanted to tell that, I thought that it's dissimilar from my first film, and we could talk about that if you want. But yeah. th- this, 
I felt like captured more of who Iowa am. Mm-hmm. It had my sense of humor. It had my kind of political leanings. It had my love of books and my love of nature. And it had a lot of me in it. And I thought, I want to make a film that it feels like, you know, this is me naked, you mm-hmm. know? And I, I kind of wanted to do that. And so I was passionate about that. Well, and that's um, where we get the good stuff. I mean, look at the best films. Yeah. That's, I feel like that's what the writer or director yeah. or usually the same person is yeah. saying. To, to reflect on what you said before about, about, um, this the character and story and then it being a collaborative process i think if you were asking how do you retain those ideas in uh, you know i i think i have i and maybe because i i am an actor and i want to be collaborative as an actor uh it's a collaborative medium and we spend a lot of time we discussing all of us discussing um you know, the authorship of the director and we revere directors and, and DPs and certain, you know, there's certain elements and, and, and yet there are many, 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 many voices that can have, uh, uh, a voice. Um, as you said, um, it, you know, it's there, it's very easy to go off the rails and the director's job is to pick and choose the ideas. But I also think the director's job is to open up for many ideas mm-hmm. and, you know, the film is largely determined by the people I chose as the heads of department and the actors. And so that is in some ways on me. But then once I invite them in, I, I try and create a really collaborative arena because I think it's it's as simple as more brains are better than one brain. And if I think it's a crappy idea, ultimately, I don't have to take it, right? But it's, it's I want to hire people who are so much better at their job than I would ever be because you mm-hmm. you can't do every job. Um, it is a balance, if I'm being really honest. I think I'm still, I'm well, I'm not, I don't think. I, I know I'm still learning. You could fill a football stadium with what I do not know, but I'm still playing with the balance of collaboration, and sometimes I think that you know, you can over collaborate, and I and I'm not going to name the things, but in the films I've done, sometimes the things I'm a, I'm I'm attacked for are th- are some sometimes I can pinpoint those sure. exact moments are things that <laughs> I did not want to do, but I allowed a certain collaboration, and then yet I'm blamed for it. You yeah. know, and that's that's just that's the well, that's it, being the director. It is exactly you make the choice. Yes, exactly right. Exactly uh, right. Does the film that we've seen look like the script that you wrote? Yes, actually, yeah. it does. Uh, there were many versions. Mm-hmm. The I, I think this, the shooting script was 111 pages. It was I think it was 117, which was way too long. And I cut it down to 111. And I should have cut it down to 95, <laughs> honestly, because of the way I work. Uh, I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't figure out where to cut more, though. It's fascinating. I, as we go, as I've gone along this journey, I've seen this happen um, many times. When the document of the screenplay must function in an entirely different way than the film will end up functioning, mm-hmm. you and I can read a screenplay and absolutely agree that we must have this information here and this information there. Otherwise, we cannot connect the dots mm-hmm. because we're having this experience. How do we know? 
this is going to happen or th- or that he's thinking this or she does that if it's not explicit in some way, right? You can't assume that I can look at your face and know that you know that I know that you're the killer or whatever, right? You can't you can't you you can write that, mm-hmm. but frequently when you write that people are like, "Well, how do we know? How do you you need to show it more than that?" So things some sometimes screenplays become uh, exceedingly explicit. Mm-hmm. But we all agree that it's necessary. Then you get and you fight as a director. You fight to have these scenes. No, we must have the scene over there. We need that location. We must have it. And then you get in the edit and you realize, we don't need that at all. We don't need that at all. (laughs) We can tell from his face, from the previous scene, that he knows, that I know, that you know, that Mm -hmm. she knows. And so cut that scene. I lost my train of thought about what I was even talking about. What uh, you asked me? What the screenplay looked like? Oh yeah, so it was 111 pages, yeah. and uh, when the editor, uh, guy I work with, Joe Krings, great editor, um, amazing storyteller, and he's a true, true one of my central collaborators. He edited both my films. His first cut, he was editing while we were shooting. I had nothing to do with it. He was just he was doing his cut. Mm-hmm. It was three and a half hours long, and partly that was because I like to. Some I like to allow the actors to uh, come up with ideas, to improv in and out of scenes. There are certain sequences th- that I would have liked to keep, but we there were repetitive moments mm-hmm. uh, that came from improvisations or ideas that they brought. So he's kind of like putting everything in, right? And then you're realizing, okay, we, this we don't need this. We're saying the same thing four times, and um, I would say that the the answer to your question is. Um, there was an earlier cut that was slower. I would say, uh, if I labeled it, I would call it the slower, more lyrical European cut, <laughs> right? Sure. Where things breathed more. It wasn't quite as... Uh, it, the, the, the central plot, the central structure was the same. I was not super happy with some of the comedic elements in the, I would say, once they leave the compound, the sort of the, the beginning of the, their entree into the, the mm-hmm. world, there was, there's a couple of, there's some shenanigans that happen, and I wasn't crazy about how I had shot some of those things, mm-hmm. and, and I didn't think they had, they didn't quite have the impact that I wanted, and so I was, I cut some of that away, so you lost some of the more humorous elements or humorous elements, and the film, I don't know if it was sadder, but it allowed for other things in the back end, but it felt out of balance ultimately. And then I went back to the screenplay, which had those, uh, those scenes. There's a scene in a bank. There's a scene in a supermarket. Um, there was a, you know, some of the scenes were, were I, I, some scenes I cut entirely. There's a roadkill scene where the little girl makes the father stop to bring on a roadkill and she brings on this huge bloated, dead, bleeding, dead cat. And it was. I mean, I love those things, but and I thought they were funny. Um, the cat didn't look entirely real. That was a problem. Um, it actually, it actually, weirdly, this is the thing that happens so much in film versus life. You see something, and you, if you show that in a film, no one would believe it. Of course. So the cat I chose was exactly shaped and like the cat I saw on the side of the road, which was this bloated cat that was like swollen and it was like this. But and, and I thought it was just amazing. But when you show it on screen, it just it didn't look real. It takes you out of the movie. I cut that. I mean, ultimately, I went back to the screenplay with the uh, with the idea that the bigger the front, the bigger the back. Mm -hmm. If there's more humor up front, then you'll care about these characters. You'll fall in love with them. You'll be on their side. So I had that, and so I would say ultimately, um, the only things that were lost that were huge were Missy Pyle. 
who's a, a fantastic actress, mm-hmm. a lovely human being. She did the movie for a scene that she had with Vigo in um, uh, in a trailer in a trailer park that was cut. Mm-hmm. So she's been relegated to an extra, which was really painful for me because she's amazing, and probably more painful for her. <laughs> um, uh, but um, so that she was cut, and and then there was aside from that, Frank Langella and Anne Dowd, who played the grandparents, the the. Getting back to the screenplay must function in this way, and the movie doesn't need to. A lot of, not a lot of people. Some people thought that one sort of. I guess it's uh, towards the end of the second act, or somewhere in the third act. I don't know. These are sort of arbitrary mm-hmm. ideas, but uh, somewhere in that part of the movie, when V goes with the children at the grandparents, and he's sort of realizing I'm going to leave them here. He's coming to the realization that I'm culpable, this is my fault. Mm-hmm. Spoiler. Uh, and um, based on what just happened with the young woman on the roof, the, the girl on the roof, she's a young woman now. When we shot it, she was a girl. I can say that. <laughs> when um, did, wait, when did you shoot that? Uh, we shot this in 2014. In 1848. Oh, wow. <laughs> we, shot this, we shot this two years ago. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway. Um, and, and, and in fact, we were almost going to come out last summer, but the mm-hmm. music wasn't ready. And, and, and that's another discussion about the the jockeying for position in terms of when you come out and what, are you going through a festival and if you are, what time of year and that, that each festival sets up a release, a specific mm-hmm. release and dealing with what the distributors would like that, you know, all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so that, that section of the film, I felt like from at a screenplay level, you needed to really believe that this character would leave his kids mm-hmm. and, and, I think some of the earlier drafts did a disservice to that idea that it felt too quick for people. They hmm. wanted to they wanted to spend more time with him. I, it was also an opportunity if this film shows three cultures that is the off the grid culture, the suburban American culture, and the sort of wealthy conservative uh, culture of um, you know golf course communities mm-hmm. and gated communities. We, I wanted to introduce that culture a little more and see the <laughs> see the landscape that the children would grow up in if they were to be raised by the grandparents. And so we did a lot of we had a lot. There was some stuff in the in the in the in the screenplay like kids were watching TV in Franklin Jaws uh, screening room, you know, and they'd never seen TV before, and sure. and he's catching them watching TV, and they're sort of apologetic, and because of the house we chose. I did. We did some improvisations with the youngest boy, Charlie Shotwell, plays Nye, doing his samurai uh, sword stuff on a basketball court. And we, I had all the kids swim in the swimming pool, and they're laughing. They'd never been in a swimming pool before. And and George Mackay, who plays Bodovin, was doing yoga on the um, on the golf course when the sprinklers come up. And there's like you know, a little comedic <laughs> sure. moment. And he's like, "What the hell is going on? I'd never seen sprinklers." So I was introducing that introducing that culture, and I liked that. Mm-hmm. But again, there is a longer arguably richer film but it is not a better movie mm-hmm. you know it's the, it's the like well at what point it, do you just want Hamlet to die right <laughs> Hamlet is a great play maybe the best example of dramatic poetry in the English language but at hour three or two and a half you're kind of like okay when is he going to die I'm ready for this yeah. you know so there's that there's that and that's and, interesting you do know. you and we'll, we'll get into some nuts and bolts stuff mm-hmm. but how aware of you during the actual writing phase that this is stuff that might fall away? Or does it all feel necessary at the time? I think I try and distill it mm-hmm. so that it all feels necessary. 
sometimes I th- I'm also aware because I write to direct and and I think if you write for other people to direct there's a there's a, those are different conversations right and you may need to provide material that they want or that other people want that you don't agree with or whatever for me sometimes I, I've been conscious of putting things in the screenplay that I think this probably won't last, but something might come out of this that I'll be able to use for that scene. That is really uh, the director brain rather than mm-hmm. the writer brain. Sure. I try not to do that as much. I try and not have it be in the screenplay. If I'm going to do that, I try and take notes to remember to bring on set so that I can I can add those things later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I I'm very attached to the screenplay as a piece of literature, which I know sounds just insane. But that's I, what they tell you not to do. Uh, but I love reading distilled, beautiful language, mm-hmm. you know. And certainly on a studio level, you read a lot of scripts that are very artfully done and, and feel like they have no voice. Mm-hmm. And and by voice, I'm not saying something like. And then the spaceship explodes, and fuck you all, kids. It's the most outrageous explosion. No bigger than that. You know, like, not that right. kind of language, which I actually, I, I don't like. I don't like. I don't, I don't want to be reminded that I'm reading a screenplay and that I feel like your job as a writer to do that, that exact thing that I just said, artfully, mm-hmm. without, without telling me that I'm reading a screenplay and that this is the most badass fight scene I'm ever going to see, your job is to describe the most badass fight Absolutely. scene I'm going to see. And, and, and I, I, I don't know. So I, I guess ultimately, and I'm not saying I've achieved this on any level, but I try and I, I fetishize, to use that word again, the screenplay as, as, as an object mm-hmm. and not a sacred one, um, not one that, that cannot be totally fucked with once we get to set. I don't... I, 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 sure. Um, but I want but it to be... still want it to be an enjoyable reading I experience. want it to be an elegant object. Yeah. You know, and so I try and distill is what I'm... Mm-hmm. Ultimately. Um, I'll put you on the spot for a second. Yeah. Are there yeah. screenplays you've read that achieve this that you sort of aspire to or that you go back to? Chinatown? Sure. I mean, I know that's that's the one that everyone says, but it's like... But it does. But, it because does it. it does. It yeah. does. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, recently I read Arrival. I mm-hmm. thought that was an elegant screenplay. I thought it was beautiful. I really did. I thought mm-hmm. it was. I thought it was like a kind of A plus execution of a, a, a pretty non cinematic short story. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's one that's just on my mind. I don't know how I feel. Interesting. You know, in twenty years, but um, and certainly, you know, the test of time has proved that Chinatown um, is sure. that. Uh, well, those are good answers, and mm-hmm. and obviously Chinatown comes up a lot. But yeah, yeah if it's people haven't that, read it. Go read it. Yeah. In yeah, addition to yeah, seeing the movie. Yeah. Um, we have to start to wrap up, but I yeah. wanted to ask you a complicated question. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Uh, about hold on, let me get the bong ready. Okay, yep, okay. <laughs> we're going to get into deep philosophy. No, it's about it, it's really a sort of nuts and bolts writing question, mm. but it's about emotional honesty. Mm. Um, and you know, the emotional moments in Captain Fantastic did not feel false. They didn't ring good. false to That's me. Good. Um, and maybe it's sleight of hand, and maybe it's honest. Either way, it works. Okay. So how how do you get to be emotionally honest on the page? What is your mm. what does it look like when you're sitting down to write mm. a scene that you think is emotionally important? Well, I suppose it depends on how you define how. Let's define terms for a minute. Are you talking about the emotional on, emotional honesty of the scene where he tells his kids that their mother's dead? Is that because that's that's a that's a very palpable example of sure. a, of, of of an emotion? Are you talking about that? I think or that's are you talking the easy about version. Some, yeah, it actually is because. In that version, you, 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 
all you can do is try and describe the quality of crying that you're hoping to elicit once yeah. you get there. And I think the description, from, if I'm remembering correctly, was something like, I tried to indicate that it was going to be very raw that it that it's that it's that that the 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 children are comfortable crying around each other and it's like a it's like uh, um, an Italian funeral or something, or like sure. a, you know, that's, I hope that's not a racial stereotype. But but I was trying. To We've think all like, seen the. I, I, was, I was thinking. I was trying to think of something like like Greek drama where there's mm-hmm. just like someone is, you know, bone rattling weeping, and so I tried to I tried to. And I described it, you know, like you know, the snots coming out of their mouth, and like it's just uh, you know out of their nose, and 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 that it's that it's palpable. The other stuff, I think, when people read the screenplay, they told me that certain people had cried at different moments mm-hmm. and sometimes unexpected moments. So I almost feel like it's an overall gestalt in a way, rather than a, um, something as pinpointed as you're saying. I. In a way, I think it may have. And I've never, I've never been asked this question, so I'm not entirely sure. But I think it, it may have something to do with the soundness of the architecture, mm-hmm. rather than uh, any kind of specific scene and the minutia of how they were phrased. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, so you're setting <clears throat> up the story flows in such a way that. That something that happens here in the beginning of the film has impact later. Yeah, uh, I, I think it may have made because sometimes people respond, "Well, that made me cry." And I thought, "Really? That made you cry? I, I hadn't intended that at all." You know, um, certainly you know that when they sing a song at the funeral, that that's an emotional moment. Right. And but I think you only earn that by his relationship with the kids in small, honest moments for the first hour of yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah. I think know? that's true. And I think, it, I think, I think it is the architecture of the thing. It's you're building these relationships. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's true. I, that's I, I think I was aware of many things, and I, I, it's always shocking to discover how many things you, you cannot preconceive. You know, I knew that the character as written could be a pontificating blowhard and that he had to be portrayed a certain way mm-hmm. or you would tire of him. I also like films that challenge you, and I, I like to be challenged. I like seeing films where I'm utterly surprised by a turn, and it could be a subtle one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's just superior drama. And, well, and you know. I think that's something you do really well in this film, is is that is a hard character. Yeah. Uh, Vigo's yeah. character is a hard character, and I think you take him right to the line mm-hmm. and cross it when you need to. He actually, in a, in a way, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, he... he he played it differently than it was written, in fact. I mean, we're talking about so? writing. and um, Well, I would say that I was aware, as I said, of that there were certain traps of the character. And to kind of navigate around that on a script level, I tried to make him as much as a playful, fun father as well as being someone who was... Um, who, who he, he had a very rigorous schedule for the children, but rather than being uh, sort of a, a marine mm-hmm. taskmaster who was shouting at the children, I tried, to, on, on the, in the screenplay, he was uh, very playful a lot, and I thought that that would make you, if you were amused, you would, you would, you would see, you would, you would see the love they have for him, and you would sure. fall in love with him. That's not something that, you know, it's funny, because Vigo and I actually never really talked about that. The first time I saw him do the role was in callbacks with the kids, and 
the scenes that he read didn't necessitate that kind of behavior. And performances are created over time. It's, you know, you, 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 the first couple of days, everyone is trying to figure out what they're doing. And we, you talk about certain colors and I really wanted him to find his comfort zone with the character. And it wasn't a radical change, but it was a subtle difference. Hmm. Uh, it, it was a subtle difference from how the character was written. I thought that what he brings, which is, I think, to everything he does, mm-hmm. a kind of gravitas, a kind of authenticity, he has an intelligence. I thought that was so much more valuable than any kind of overtly or explicitly playful energy, a more bubbly, fun dad, you know. Sure. Uh, and 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 so I let that happen and, and um and then we found moments where he could laugh and smile and right. play with the kids. And it seems and it means more when he does. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. he's because he's this Vigo guy before. Yeah. But it's funny because in a way, um when we were filming it, this is counter to what I just said, though the screenplay was written that way, as I was directing it, I kept on thinking, no, no, he's got to be so rigid because you want him to break. You want it to be this mm. fist in a way I thought sure. about. It. I, my, my concept of the character was he's a tight fist. He's a tight fist. He's mm-hmm. a tight fist. And eventually, well, tight fisted means something that, that I don't mean. He's, he's bound he's clenched. up. He's yeah. clenched. Exactly. He's clenched. He's rigid. He's just trying to hold it together mm-hmm. so that when he lets go, finally, we can feel that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's yeah. well. Look, it's great. You did a great job. Congratulations. Thank you. Sir. Uh, what's next? Do you know for writing and directing? I'm presently writing very poorly. <laughs> Congratulations. Three screenplays. Of, oh man. Of my own. Um, yeah, my own ideas. Um, I I'm somewhat attached. Uh, well, I'm not somewhat. I'm pathologically attached to trying to. Um, write my own stuff you know i i think um i don't know we'll see if if at this point i've been offered things that i haven't written and it's enormously flattering and somewhat shocking that anyone would would give their babies to me but um i i feel like um someone said to me once uh i don't want anyone to fuck this up i want to fuck this Mm -hmm. up and and I kind of feel that way, you know. And I also feel like I want to fail to the best of my own talents and abilities. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and it takes so long. It takes so yeah. long, doesn't it? And you spend so much time talking about it afterwards. And you've got to care. you really got to care about it. Absolutely. And So why not do something that is yours and yeah. that you care about? It's a very yeah. privileged position to be in. I mean, that's the other thing I think that has to be said is that for many people, if not most people, you do it partially because it's the thing you do and you love and it's also the thing that feeds your children or pays your rent or mortgage or whatever and so you, many of us take jobs that we're not in love with we just try and make the best we can uh, at this moment in time I'm trying not to do that and I, I want to see if I can you know so I'll do something that's probably radically different and that everyone will hate and be like why did he make that movie and then that one so, so <laughs> make I think, him stop I think, so I think the next one I'm going to make is going to be just a t- I'm going to make a terrible movie I'm congratulations yes, I you. hope that's you the, do that's the, yeah. um, and Silicon Valley is shooting now yeah I was shooting yesterday yeah, yeah. The, and the one be, in the morning when, when is that out again I think they're on the same schedule I think they come out every year in summer April, April. Okay. I think. I think. I could be wrong. Well, we love the show. Yes, and, uh, they're very, very talented. Right Speaking of writers, they're very talented. They really are. And that's yeah. a whole other conversation yeah. about, you know, saying the words of yeah. other talented yeah. writers. Yeah. Uh, so come back and they, talk to us. They make, it, they make it easy. In brief, they make it easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Congrats again. Thank you. 
Now leaving Nerdist.com. 